from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. If you want to interconnect a, a battery or a solar panel or whatever to the utility today, they're going to look at the worst hour or when the most demand was on that line of the entire year and tell you if you're allowed to inject or not based on that. That could just be one hour or two or three out of 8760 in a year, and that's, um, that's very limiting. This week, come along with me on a journey to monetize some distributed energy resources. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Picture this. Tens of millions of controllable electric devices distributed in the world amongst homes, businesses, and industries, all being operated in concert to relieve stress on the grid, complement the growth of intermittent renewables, and reduce the need for new peak electricity generating capacity. You've probably heard that vision before because we've been talking about it for over a decade, I would say. It's the dream of the distributed flexible grid enabled by aggregation and modernization of fleets of DERs, batteries, EV chargers, thermostats, controllable load, and much, much more. So is it still a dream or is it actually becoming reality? Honestly, I I think it's kind of hard to tell. It's happening for sure, but in pockets. Is it held back by market structure and regulation, by pricing, by the rollout of the distributed energy resources themselves, by the unit economics or the business models? I think the answer is probably yes. But better than my thoughts are those of my old friend Matthew Sachs, who's been monetizing aggregated distributed energy resources since at least 2015. He is today the SVP of Strategic Planning and Business Development at CPower, which is one of the largest DER aggregators in the country. So let's hear what he has to say about it. Here's Matthew. Matthew, welcome to Catalyst. Thanks, Shale. It's great to be here. It is great to have you and to talk about distributed energy resources. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do think it is important because people use this term, DERs, to mean lots of different things, and depending on the context, that can have an impact on what we're actually talking about. So when you think of distributed energy resources, how do you define them? Yeah, I think that's a great point of clarification, Shale. And when we say DERs or distributed energy resources, what we're really referring to is anything that stores, consumes, or or um, generates electricity that's A, located in the distribution grid, and B, can respond to a signal. So a battery is a great example, but but also your refrigerator, if that refrigerator is, let's call it tech-enabled enough to respond to a signal. Got it. So it's an expansive definition here, anything that can respond to a signal. I also want to maybe delineate between or figure out what the relationship is between DERs that are active on the grid and the concept of demand response which has been around longer, I think, than at least the term DERs, but there's a fair amount of overlap between the two. So do you distinguish between those two things, or do you think of them as being one as like a market mechanism to enable the other? Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish. Personally, I probably didn't historically, but but when I joined CPower about four years ago, I found it really important to distinguish because demand response means a lot of different things to people. Um, to many people, demand response means um, seasonal peaks or running um, 
controlling demand to avoid seasonal peaks um, and really a capacity product. But but what it means to me is really modulating demand to provide any type of grid service, whether that be a capacity energy or, or an ancillary product. And in fact, we've gone and started calling it DER monetization, A, to avoid that confusion, but also because we're starting to see opportunities for DERs to inject into the grid if, if they do have that ability, um, which is going past where, where I would classically uh, define demand response. So the way that I think about it, you could tell me if this aligns, DERs are the resources themselves, right? These are the things that you can control in response to a signal, as you said. Demand response is a market function. There's various versions of it, obviously, but it is a way to leverage, sometimes leverage DERs and sometimes not, right? I mean, I guess just turning off your system, like the, the original version of demand response was basically going to industrial customers and saying like, shut down now when we have a system peak. You're not really leveraging DERs to do that, right? It's pretty pretty manual, but it's a it's a market mechanism into which DERs can participate sometimes. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I, I think demand response has evolved in itself, or DER monetization has evolved over time, where it started off, you know, historically um, really with a, a more manual process, right? Where we had manual controls, maybe phone banks and things. There, there's some truth to, to those stories that are probably lodged in many people's heads, but it has since become very automated where really every signal C-Power sends out is an automated signal. And what I would argue is it's quickly moving towards optimi uh, optimized or optimization where where it's not looking, it's looking at what product could make the most value for the grid and for the customer at, at any uh, specific time. So that's really where the, the communications and controls have evolved. Um, there's been a, a bunch of other kind of evolutions. I would say on the regulatory side, it, it used to be, regulators used to be fairly skeptical. Then we got to FERC 745, where, where it was demand response was firmly accepted by FERC as, as a resource. But we've kind of even moved past that to where it's being encouraged with orders like FERC 2222. The DER types that have participated, you know, classically they were industrial loads, maybe HVAC. They've really expanded to DG, um, things like energy storage, microgrids, even EVs now, certainly thermostats. Um, so we're seeing a lot of, of different parts. And maybe the, the most important evolution is, is what it's used for. Or what problem is it solving in the grid? Uh, originally, um, I mentioned it earlier, it was really used to reduce seasonal peaks. And now we're seeing it used really to provide a full spectrum of, of flexibility services, things to firm renewables, to respond to more frequent grid disruptions, or, or really it is the, the new clean peaker. All right, so I want to dig into a few of the things that you mentioned there, certainly some of the regulatory stuff and all the different types of resources that are providing grid services at the moment. But I think maybe one thing that's useful to walk through to start is the vertical stack of DER monetization as it stands today. You can imagine on one end of this stack, there's a device. It could be, as you said, a refrigerator, it could be a battery behind the meter, it could be some industrial load, but there's, there's some controllable load. On the other end of the stack is whoever operates the grid. So, and we should talk about this. In some markets, that's an ISO, an independent system operator, in other markets that is a utility, but there's somebody who's responsible for maintaining supply and demand balance on the grid. 
And then there's a bunch of stuff in between that I think is sort of complicated and depends on the situation. So how, how do you think about layering the stack from bottom to top of uh, an aggregated DER monetization? Yeah, I think it's probably a great place to get grounded here. More than a stack, I kind of think of it as a sandwich, as, as you kind of alluded to. Um, on, on one side, you have the customer, the home or the business that adopts DERs and devices, assets, and let's just call them suppliers of flexibility. On the other side, you have the grid that needs flexibility, and we could certainly unpack that a little bit, but but those are buyers of um, flexibility. And how are they connected? Some customers are, are big enough, understand markets well enough, and, and really active enough to go out there and, and just connect themselves, right? So they, they take their own DRs and connect to the grid, but that's, that's really the exception. More often, there's um, a kind of a middle ecosystem inside that sandwich. And um, and that's really chiefly what, what's often called aggregators or sometimes CSPs. Um, and here, um, you know, the aggregator has a few advantages or, or services that it, it provides the, the customer and the grid. Um, the first of those is it, is it kind of spreads the fixed cost, call it regulatory technology, M&V expertise and, and compliance over a greater kind of base. So it, it just becomes more economical. Um, the second is on the portfolio side. Certainly having, um, if you have one resource connected to the grid, there's a ton of performance risk. But if you have 17,000 resources connected to the grid, there's some mitigation of, of that risk of performance. Um, the last, in, and this is something that CPower's really been doing over the last five or six years, and, and I think more and more in the industry will get here, is this um, aggregation of kind of small pieces that that couldn't small pieces of load and DERs that couldn't um, that couldn't participate on its own, but assembling them in a way that together these pieces um, could comply with uh, a program's regulations, uh, rules, and requirements. Say, taking you know, a very simple example is taking summer heavy thermostats in, say, PJM, combining it with excess winter industrial load in PJM, and making a full seasonal product to participate in their capacity market. One of the things that has always occurred to me as I spend time in, in DER aggregation worlds is just how uh, how many layers there can be in that stack, or I guess um, fillings in the sandwich, perhaps. If you'd prefer, sometimes it can be very simple, as you said, like some large industrial customers are just sophisticated enough to do it on their own. But the other, but the other end of the spectrum, I feel like, is so thermostats, you took it, that's a good example. So there's a thermostat in somebody's home. Somebody needs to control that thermostat in response to a grid signal. So there's there's some measure of control that somebody needs to exert other than the homeowner because they're not going to do it. So you can aggregate up a full home load with a bunch of different things, or you can aggregate up a bunch of thermostats across a bunch of different homes or some combination of those two things and exert a bunch of control. But as you said, there's other things that need to be done too. There's M&V, measurement and verification. There's the grid access level, and that's sort of interfacing with either the utility or with a wholesale market and getting qualified to participate in all those things and then monetizing it. And so in some of these cases, I've found you can have multiple intermediaries between the load, the customer, and the grid. And one of the challenges with that, I've always thought, is they're just the economics are not that rich. Like the amount of 
economic value you can extract from a thermostat in response to grid signals is not nothing, but it's not enough to allow for, you know, three different intermediaries to take a slice of the pie. So I guess one thing I'm curious about is, do you think that it should be, do you think that this should be a really streamlined market where there's a customer with a DER, there's somebody in between interfacing with the grid, and then there's the grid? And if so, how do we get to that point? Well, maybe just to start, first, I think you're right, particularly with like really small quote-unquote pixels like Resi. Um, for, from our experience, we are, not the, we are not really the aggregator there. We provide market access, and we work with Resi aggregators. Um, and there's also often a, a software layer in between that may or may not be owned by that, that Resi regulator. So it does get complex. Um, where I'm not sure I agree is on the cost side, and is there enough to go around? Um, and I, I think that's been true historically. Um, I think it depends market to market right now of, of where we are, and but we're starting to, to see those value streams emerge. And what we're really seeing happen is a thermostat's a great example. If a utility wanted to do a resi demand response program 15, 20 years ago, they would drive a truck to your house, put in some little box that has a you know some type of communications packet in it and, and really is a switch for your, your HVAC system. I don't know what it costs, but let's say it costs $1,000 to roll a truck. Now they take a smart thermostat that costs, I don't know, wholesale 50 bucks, maybe 100 bucks, put it in a box and send it to you for $5.99. So their, their costs went down 80 90% to, to do that install, and, and that's making it lower. But, and that's the install costs. But now if you look at the actual customer acquisition costs, we're seeing resi loads more and more controllable as you resi loads. It's not just a thermostat. It could be a, an EV, it could be a refrigerator, like we said. Basically, everything could be enabled and controlled. Some may not be economical to, to do everything, but and some may not have the flexibility from the demand side. But something like a refrigerator certainly does, um, and, and certainly an EV, and certainly a water heater, and, and certainly um, the thermostat. So as you put that all together, you're basically, what does that mean? You're getting more watts per customer acquired. So now your, your kind of acquisition costs go down, and, and you put that together... And you could start seeing it become competitive with where, um, say, CNI demand response has been over the, the last five, 10 years. Um, the one thing I would add to that is it doesn't really, resi demand response doesn't really compete with CNI demand response. Because if you take the duct curve in California, when, when does it start? Four, five, six, all, all, all pretty big CNI load pockets. But, but when does it end? Say nine o'clock, right? Somewhere around there. By then, a lot of that CNI load has dissipated, at least in, in many regions and zones. Um, so where does it go, though? It goes home. So I think this is something that I think is a big value add. We could leave it to grid operators, and some do put this together themselves and run a resi program in a CNI, and that's great. But a lot have struggled with that, especially as that time has changed. So I think... By putting that resi and CNI load, they naturally complement each other, and you kind of get that whole area under the, the curve, whether it's a duck curve or, or whatever shape it might take. Did that did that make sense to you? Yeah, totally. I think I think that's an, that's a good point. The difference between when resi load typically peaks, as you said, later in the evening, and when CNI load peaks, which is earlier, 
in the day or in the afternoon. And so if you combine them, it's similar to also what you just said before about PJM and different loads. Like you just, the more you have a diversity of load uh, and load types, the more able you should be, at least in theory, to mix and match them and control them all differently. I think the challenge we've always seen, like that, that's been the promise since day one of excitement around DER aggregation. And the, the challenge has never really been does this make sense? Is this a good idea, right? It's always been a good idea. It's always made sense. The challenge has been implementation. And there've just been a million, it's like death by a thousand cuts that have made this challenging, right? The who who is the aggregator? What is the customer experience? What is the market mechanism? Sort of, as you said, is there actually a mechanism to sort of trade between resi load and CNI load in any given market? And so I think what we've been you know, as the market has evolved over the past decade or whatever it has been, there's always been this dream of what ultimately is like a fairly open, fairly free market that allows lots of innovation at various different scales and with various different resources. Um, but nothing is that simple in the electricity market ever. So I'm curious where you think we are on that journey. Like relative to when you started doing this, are things simpler now? Uh, in order to monetize DERs, are they more complex? Is it has it not changed at all? I'd say it's slightly simpler, but probably not moving quite fast enough. Um, luckily, I believe in exponential change, so so we'll we'll speed up on the back end. But um, it's not really a, a technology challenge. We we have technology. I, we we talked a little bit about pairing different loads and putting them together. We talked. Um, what we haven't talked about is we. We do a lot of site level optimization with the larger clients that that really allow uh, a battery or a microgrid to, or even load that's controlled to find the the most optimal way to be dispatched hour by hour. So that might be going to a grid, or it might be a, a bill saving kind of mechanism like a demand charge management or time of use. Um, so so that's not a technology problem, which I think is where it's often confused. Maybe. It's a scale problem as you develop technology. You know, it's it's expensive if you don't have scale. Um, but as scale comes, that that technology, you know, is, is a fixed cost. But but really, at Sea Power, we're not seeing that. We we have the technology to do what we need, and, and can certainly develop more as, as it evolves. Um, where I do think it there's issues is on the data side. Right, there's a lot of redundant costs there, um, where we have to often put in our own meter. Even when there's a AMI deployed, um, and, and that that's always bugged me, right? And so that that's you know why can't those AMI more AMI units be kind of enabled, Zigbee enabled, or, or whatever kind of network that they're using to to allow us to get that real time data and save that truck roll to there? And that's particularly important for Resi, where it's just never paid to to go out there and, and get that real time data. Because if it's not, you're getting you're, you're flying blind. You're basically getting data the next day, um, which which doesn't help with real time programs. I think on the data part, there's also just the the letter of authorization or, or these basically gaining customer approval. It's kind of an old process, you know. For many utilities, you still need a wet signature, or certainly a signature that's returned back to the utility. If I want to go. I don't know, get a mortgage or apply for some type of credit, I check a box on the screen and it's approved. And I mean, I, I think everyone has their own their own view on things, but I, I'm be much more concerned with, 
with my financial data getting out there that's in a credit check than how I use my electricity. Not, not that it's not private, but why can't we digitize it like the financial industry has? And why do we have to spend so much time going back and forth? So there's a lot of cost to, to come out there. Maybe in a whole, you know, and this, this is probably a, the biggest barrier here is, um, is coordination. I'd kind of put this on the market structure side. And um, let me let me riff here for a second. But the distribution grid that that where all these DRs are located has really been designed to operate at a static condition. Um, you know, typically peak load. So, for example, if you want to interconnect a, a battery or a solar panel or whatever to the utility today, they're going to look at the worst hour or when the most demand was on that line of the entire year, and tell you if you're allowed to inject or not based on that. And, and that's that could just be one hour or two or three out of eighty seven sixty in a year, and that's um you know that that's very limiting. Um, utilities need to, and and I would argue in many cases, at least from my discussions, want to move to our dynamic model, where they can operate and and assets can inject if it's feasible at that instant, not if on the based on the the, the most used hour of any uh, day or year. Um, and this requires, though, a lot of alignment between the utilities, their regulators, um, the DR community, ISOs and RTOs that they operate within. And, and this is, is and has taken a long time. And it's a little scary. I mean, putting a lot of our, our, our goals for flexibility and be able to do this clean aside for a second, but customers are adopting DRs regardless of all this. And without this coordination, it's going to become really scary for grid operators to, to operate with all this unpredictable load behind the meter. Um, we've had FERC 2222. I think it's a big step here, and it's brought all the parties together to have some of the more difficult discussions, and they're ongoing. But even as this passes and, and each ISO comes up with their plan, it's going to take a while for utilities to and their regulators to evolve. And... Um, you know, which is going to limit the amount of, of injection you could get out of DERs um, in the term. Maybe if there's a silver lining here, and it probably is demand response, because demand response is modulating load. There is no injection for that, um, and, and that's really where we've, um, where we think is going to to kind of be the right on ramp, if that's the right word, to to kind of build this, and and that's why demand response is and, and will be for the immediate future the largest DR. But but don't sleep on the, the batteries and microgrids and, and other assets that can inject, as I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. So I want to I talk more about that FERC order 2222 in a minute. But first, maybe just repeat back to you in simple terms what it sounds like you're describing. So current state of affairs is... Um, you say, I want to interconnect this thing to the grid. The utility says, okay, let me look at what what is probably going to be the, the worst, most difficult hour of the year. And if you're likely going to tip us over the edge where we might have an outage as a result of your thing, then even one hour a year, then you can't interconnect or you can't interconnect without a distribution grid upgrade. That, there's good reason behind that, right? You know, utilities are sort of incentivized toward reliability above all else, um, or above almost all else. So it makes sense that they look at it that way. But what you're saying is what's not taken into account is the possibility that some of the things on that distribution line 
could actually serve to alleviate the stress at those peak hours. And so if in that distribution planning or in that interconnection process, the utility was saying, well, actually, we're, there's a bunch of behind-the-meter batteries um, on this same network. We could dispatch into the grid, uh, and we have confidence that we could do so at those same hours, then maybe it's actually okay to to plug in that EV charger you know, two houses down the road or whatever it's going to be. But it requires the utility or the grid operator to have that level of certainty that they have visibility into the resources and that they can dispatch them when they need to. I'd say right, and that letter and that level of certainty comes from that coordination between the, the different stakeholders, namely the the customer, the utility, and and the ISOs. Right. Okay. So let's talk about FERC twenty two twenty two. So this was when it happened. So this is so FERC regulates all of the organized wholesale electricity markets in the United States. I think something like. 70% of customers in the U.S. are in ISOs and RTOs. Some are not. There's some vertically integrated. Somebody will, will tell me whether that number is right or wrong, but it's a recollection from, an echo from a decade ago when I actually knew the number. Anyway, the point being, is represents a big chunk of the country that FERC regulates. Um, and it was this watershed order, 2222, which if I can summarize, and you tell me if this is right, the order originally basically said all ISOs and RTOs, every organized wholesale market, must introduce rules to allow aggregations of distributed energy resources to participate. Because prior to that, some had, some hadn't. The rules were murky. Sometimes qualification was uncertain. And so this was basically saying, nope, this is a class of resource. It has the right to participate in the market. Now go off and define the rules for it to do so. Do I have the gist of it about right? Yeah, you definitely have the gist right. I, I would just add that they ha- are allowed to compensate. Um, they are allowed to participate and then be compensated in kind as other generators in, in kind of layman terms. Right. Okay. And so it was this big, big deal. At the same time, a lot of people were saying, well, let's let's be clear. This is the start of what is going to be probably a long journey to implement, to do the rulemaking processes, and so on. So we are, what, more than five years hence from the order itself. What has happened since then? Well, a lot has happened, um, maybe so. Um, and, and certainly we're encouraged by the progress, um, but I, I still do think it's going to take some time to, to see the full effect and, and considerably more time. But maybe... Maybe just to come back to what it is, there's kind of probably kind of two core innovations here. The, the first is to allow heterogeneous aggregations. So I don't need to put a bunch of batteries together and sell that as a resource. I could put a battery and a, a thermostat and some load together um, if I could put it together for the right, um, to fail the program's requirements. So that's great. Um and that's big. And, and then maybe in the longer run, we're talking, it, it will allow for, for DERs to inject again, or, or not again, but allow DERs to inject it. And I think that's going to prove super important, as we talked a little bit about. But as you said, devil's in the details, what's taking so long. So maybe a, a quick update here. All six ISOs and RTO proposals have been filed with FERC. Um, two have approved, have been approved. That's New York ISO and Cal ISO. Uh, the other four are pending. And you know, with Glick having held his last session late last year, uh, we're we're hopeful to to FERC um, Commission can continue to make progress. But but what's holding it up? Um, there's there's really an assortment of issues here that that we're hoping that FERC will will come and ultimately decide in favor of DERs, and and we think it makes sense. But 
things like um, MISO wants to delay implementation till 2029. That's a pretty long time sitting in even 2023, and they asked last year. Um, another uh, a big kind of uh, issue that that the FERC and, and the sector is sorting through is some ISOs, RTOs are asking for nodal aggregations. So in this nodal aggregation is a pretty small pickle pixel to aggregate around. Um, and, and this removes many of the, the benefits of aggregations and also seems to kind of fly in the face of the original order's call for, um, I believe it was the broadest possible aggregation. So if you have to aggregate and, you know, think about it, if you have to aggregate in your house, you're not going to get a lot of benefit from that aggregation. Of course, a, a node's a little bigger, but but not that much bigger. Um, just, to, just to maybe clarify that, so the, the more... The more resources you can aggregate and then bid in as a single entity, or the more diversity of resources, as we've talked about, that you can aggregate, basically the more value you can accrue, as opposed to if you have to bid in as an individual thermostat or an individual home or, you know, take it up a few levels from that even. So the the trade-off is at, at what level is an aggregation basically a single resource that can be treated as such on the grid? Uh, and if it's too too small a granule, if the, the aggregation has to be too narrow, then those resources just aren't going to have as much value. Yeah, spot on. That's it. Maybe just to complete the thought here, um, we talked about the, the four that haven't um, been approved, but Cal ISO and New York ISO both have been approved. Um, they are still working through implementation. These are kind of like the, the, the very nuanced stuff like telemetry um, or another type of like very nuanced tech requirements. But uh, but we expect that to, to progress. If, if you're uh, a betting person, I would say New York will likely lead in, in megawatts um, initially. And this is more because New York has assets participating in, in programs that will be directly transferred in, namely their DSASP or, or their ancillary service markets. Um, and, and California that doesn't have a lot of if, if any behind the meter or DERs participating in its um, its ancillary services or similar markets, so I, I think it'll take a little while to, to ramp megawatts. Can we talk about the resources themselves and how they've evolved from from a megawatt perspective? I mean, as you said, one of the things that has happened over the years, and this was always the promise as well, is that customers are going to start adopting more different kinds of DERs, not because they can be aggregated and monetized in the grid, but because they want them for other reasons, and then they happen to be able to be monetized on the grid. Um, is it now a you know much more even split across a wide variety of resources that are actually participating today? Or is it still predominantly, you know, the old school CNI industrial load, and now we've got little pockets where stuff like thermostats and EV chargers and microgrids are participating? Yeah, it's well it's a good question. Um, maybe to start with, I think it's the vast majority of participation is load. Um, is it the old school industrial load or, or some new, more automated load is I think where you've probably seen the, the biggest transition or the biggest megawatt where things like building automation systems have enabled you to to really run those buildings almost as if they were batteries, or maybe that's a poor analogy, but but run them as a resource and, and run them automatedly, or in some cases, in many cases, customers don't want 
um, us to have direct control. So we send a, a request and they have to click OK, right? Like, or yes, this is acceptable. But but that's fairly, you know, those are kind of the, the two more automated ways. Is there some industrial processes out there that they shut down? Yeah, at some price, it makes sense for uh, a steel plant to send home a shift, right? But that's, you know, especially with today's pricing and productivity, that, that doesn't happen that often. You should think of those types of assets as good for one, two, maybe three dispatches a year where, where we have some programs that are dispatching 60 times a year. Um, just to, to circle back on, on kind of the other side of that, the device and asset side of that equation, still small. You know, from our standpoint, where we're, um, you know, I'd say just around a, a sixth of our portfolio is, is these assets. So it's grown a lot from over the, you know, um, over the last three, three four, five years. Um, and those are typically machine-to-machine -machine controlled and, and allowed for, for us to, you know, control them automatedly, completely automatedly. Um, but that that's also one of the quickest growing parts of our portfolio, which is why I want to um, kind of highlight that. And, and it includes backup gen and microgrids and batteries and thermostats and, and all that stuff. But I, I think if you looked forward five, ten years, you, you might start to see that, that split start to break down. Although kind of going back to what I said before, I, I think until we really work out this injection piece that that demand response, classic demand response behind the meter is going to be a, a bigger DER than, than the others from a grid resource sign just because you, you, you won't get the benefits of injection quite yet. Speaking of injection, um, I want to talk about electric vehicles for a minute because that is, you know, maybe the the clearest sort of coming wave of potential DER resources, um, or I should say electric vehicle chargers rather than the vehicles themselves act as the actual, the, the connection to the grid, if not the resource itself. Um, and the interesting thing about EVs, sort of similar to a battery in some ways, they can act as demand response. They can act as control. And, and that means demand response in the sense of in a peak event, you can automatically shut off an EV that is charging or shut off a charger that is charging. Uh, they can act as controllable load by shifting the time at which the charging occurs. And they can, in theory, act as injection, as you said, bidirectional, and inject from the, the EV battery directly into the grid. There's terms for all this, V1G being the like controllable stuff, V2G being the injectable stuff. Um, I guess my my two-part question here is, one, how much of that are you seeing already today with the EVs that are showing up on the grid? And second, how do you think about the future there, particularly with regard to V to G uh, injecting into the grid, which is like a very, people have strong opinions about it. Yeah, well, let's start with maybe V1G. It's, it's happening today. We're doing it um, where we've had particular success, um, particularly where we have particularly been successful has been in around fleets, particularly school bus fleets. And we're, we're pretty optimistic that, that that will continue to grow quickly. But maybe just to frame the problem is you, you have these EVs come out there. You, they take more load to charge. And you kind of have two effects here. The first is a, a rising... Tide lifts all ships, so whatever balancing f services we need, we just need more because we have more load. Um, the second part is is the cul-de-sac problem, kind of where 
I get an EV and you get an EV and we both install chargers and we're living on the same cul-de-sac and it works for one of us, but not both of us. And, and that's where you, you see this V1G or managed charging come back in that says we could both drive, you know, we could take turns or we could both charge at 50% or, or something along those lines. And, and that's happening. That's really most of what we've done, even on the fleet level with um, with the school buses I mentioned right now. And, and I think that's a big part, and, and people sometimes kind of roll their eyes. It's like, oh, it's just V1G, it's old. Maybe, and I'm not saying it's it's putting the next man on the moon here, but what it is is it's solving the problem that EVs create by using EVs to solve it. So we could take a lot of EVs, we could fit a lot more EVs if we just get V1G right, and, and it's happening now, we're doing it. Others are doing it, and you know we. Um, and, and I'm pretty bullish on V1G. To go to the second part of your question, V2G or can these in check? Yeah, well, they're mobile batteries, right? And, and I'm, I do see that future, and I do think there's value there. there. There's a ton of problems and challenges to work through right now, from manufacturer warranties that could be voided to to the same dynamic versus static grid that I said uh, that, that we have with a battery here, um, but. All in all, I, I do think it makes sense. Um, V1G will help EVs solve the problem that EVs create. V2G will help EVs create an additional value that will kind of work to replace, um, as we retire dirtier peakers, these will help will help relieve that burden and create new, clean, peaking flexibility sources. And to put some numbers on that, in you know, we believe that... Um, grid services will more than triple by 2030 to, to well north of 100 gigawatts in, in North America, really the U.S. Um, and this is not not specifically for EVs. You're just saying grid services from DERs in total. Yes, we yeah, we believe grid services in total will, will triple and get to around 100 gigawatts. And we expect by 2030 that EVs will make up somewhere between a fifth and a quarter to to that contribution. So it's it's a lot of growth. Um, it it's really the the second largest kind of um, growth that we'll see then um, after CNI building curtailment, which still we it's starting from a much larger number. That's interesting. I mean, you know, to contextualize that, I guess as you said before, so so C Power's portfolio currently about a sixth of it, I think you said is um, is the sort of smaller aggregation of smaller behind the meter resources as opposed to the bigger historical industrial and commercial loads. So that's, you know, it's taken however many years to get to a sixth there. And what you're saying is over probably roughly the equivalent number of years looking forward by 2030 or so, EVs will reach something like 20 to 25%, more than a sixth, right? So the the pace of growth of EVs as a grid resource, you're saying, will be faster than the pace of growth of all these other things, thermostats, behind the meter batteries, microgrids, over the past seven years. That. That's correct, and I'd put batteries right behind EVs. Um, and, and but but we're still seeing these things get deployed. Battery numbers are a little closer in my head, but but right now I don't believe there's a market or in the U.S. a market meeting ISO or RTO that has um, over a, a gigawatt hour of batteries behind the meter in, installed behind the meter at CNI locations. I think if you looked, there's three or four markets that are are going to in, that are projected to install over a gigawatt hour or over the the next in five years. So, and several of those, mar- many of those markets will tap, break that gigawatt hour. So yeah, the 
they haven't been deployed yet, right? They're still coming. I mean, they have been deployed, but it's a bit of the law of small numbers. If you have like one battery and have two and then four, it's go. But now we're going to get to the other side of the exponential growth where we're, I think, you know, partially spurred on by the IRA and maybe accelerated by the IRA, but we're going to see um, some pretty big deployments there and, and same things with EVs and whether it's buses um, or, or other kind of commercial fleets or, or really personal vehicles. And Sounds like what you're saying is that the exponential growth, I mean, it's always been exponential growth, but the the curve has been, it's been, all this stuff has been growing, but, but it is not, I would say, if I can editorialize, I would say that sort of DER aggregation has to date not lived up entirely to the promise of a decade ago when people first got excited about it. Not to say it's not happening, but if you had said a decade ago when there was all this excitement around it, like, where are we going to be at 10 years from now? How much of the grid is going to be enabled by DR aggregations? I think we're behind that metric, but that might, first of all, just be the reality of how long market shifts take and particularly regulatory shifts take in the electricity sector, but also that the adoption curve, like we're hitting that inflection point now. And so the, you know, if you, if you take a step back on the chart and start to look at what the exponential growth curve looks like over a longer period of time, maybe we're just in that moment right now where it starts bending upward fast. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. You know, what, which DR have we seen really accelerate and grow exponentially? Solar. We, we do have some solar enrolled in our portfolio in, in what we would call a passive DR program, but um, but that's small and, and very limited to, to which markets could, you could even monetize that. So so solar is not, I don't want to say solar is not the best grid services asset, because I do think the inverter could do things and we could get into to some very interesting local controls, but but that's not the easiest one to make work. And I don't think that's, that's the right way. I think a battery, conversely, is is the ideal grid resource that could pretty much do everything. And and as that grows, whether it's through mobile batteries like EVs or, or just stationary storage, we're, we're going to see that take off. All right. Well, then what we'll do is we'll have another conversation in, you know, a year or two, and we'll see what that, what the the slope of that curve looks like at that time. Yeah, spot on. You know, and, and hopefully the markets also value it, right? We haven't talked too much about that. But right right now it's it's a little bit like whack-a-mole pricing out there, right? Where because we're working in kind of a working in a regulatory scheme market design that was set up for central station assets and kind of shoehorning all these distributed technologies into that they're, they're not always ideal and they don't always see where where the um, it's not always clear where the next value is going to come from so you could take like MISO capacity prices are up but PJM is down but PJM you have ancillaries like um, SR had a pretty good December as, as well as energy pricing has been off the chains um, and and that's you know that's that's why we've invested in technology to to kind of optimize because it's very very hard to to see where that mole's going to pop his head right now. I think as that starts to stabilize and gets a little simpler and others can entry, you'll, you'll also see that that drive. And in general, I think the grids will continue to value flexibility more. And, and as there's more value on it, I, I think that will will come in. And maybe lastly. The other thing holding up that that value driver is retirements, right? How much coal has has retired? A lot, to be frank, but but there's a lot more to come out. Something to the tune of uh, 50 gigawatts or over the next, I think, through 2030 is what I read last. 
All right. Lots more to discuss here, but we will do it at another time. Matthew, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Matthew Sachs is the Senior Vice President for Strategic Planning and Business Development at CPower. What questions do you have for the show? As always, it's a great time to send in either thoughts, questions, ideas for what we should cover. Uh, we welcome them as always to send them in. Just tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn with the hashtag AskCatalyst. That's hashtag AskCatalyst. Or you can send them to us directly by sending a voice memo or an email to catalyst at postscriptaudio.com. If you like the show, as always, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. We do appreciate that. The show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst.